Hello and welcome to the July instalment of the Shameless Book Club. This month we read Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid, the same author of our most popular book club pick yet, Daisy Jones and the Six. Malibu Rising follows four famous siblings as they throw an epic party to celebrate the end of summer in 1983. But over the course of 24 hours, their lives will change forever. Before we get into this book and our many, many thoughts, let me introduce you to my beloved co-hosts, Zara McDonald. Hello. Hello. And Michelle Andrews. Hello. G'day. How are we? <laughs> I am good. I'm excited. Same. I'm super excited. Ladies, we already gave background on Taylor Jenkins Reid's career in our Daisy Jones and the Six episode, but today we're going one step further. We actually have an interview with Taylor at the end of the episode. Thank you, Zara, for conducting that one. Very. Did you fangirl? I would have fangirled. Yeah, I was really excited excited for it. I was super excited for it because I was like, she seems like a delight. She's yes. written so much good work. I have a million things to ask. We obviously had a shorter time limit, so I had to get everything out as fast as I could, but she was as big a delight as you could imagine. Oh, meet your heroes, guys. Apparently it's worth it. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. <laughs> I've edited and listened to it already. And I feel like whenever I do that, I just like am so in awe of the friendship <laughs> that you are forming with Taylor. I don't know. There was a rapport. There was a bond. Oh, I'm <laughs> jealous. That's okay. That's okay. Okay. So instead of repeating ourselves this time around, let's jump straight in and discuss this book. What makes Malibu Rising noteworthy? Zara, let's start with you. I mean, I think one of the key things that makes it so noteworthy to start is that it's a Taylor Jenkins Reid book, right? Yeah. And that it was sold to us in a similar vein to two of her other really popular books, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Daisy Jones and the Six, which focuses very much on old celebrity, old Hollywood celebrity. There's a real element of nostalgia about it. This was set in the 1980s. It was set on a cliff face and there was surfing involved <laughs> with rock star parents. Like, that's about... What more could you want? <laughs> genuinely though, right, Mish? Yeah, it was epic. I think as well. Taylor Jenkins Reid is kind of on a similar level to like a Leanne Moriarty at the moment in that people gravitate towards her work because it has a history of being so bloody good. And the last four years have been epic. I mean, we had The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo in 2017, Daisy Jones and The Six in 2019, now this in 2021. What a massive four years to just back it up again and again and again. I do feel a little bit sorry for her. As much as she's had blinding success... Taylor has to live up to her previous work. Like naturally. <laughs> I was like, what do you feel sorry for her about? No, but people compare, like I am a massive, massive fan. The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo and Daisy Jones and the Six would be in my top five books of all time. Like she is my number one author and comparing every new book to those books is a very difficult task. And she's also, I think, had a baby during that time where she was writing those books. So I watched an interview with Taylor where she called Evelyn Hugo, Daisy Jones and Malibu Rising the first three books in her quartet. So they're set in the 60s, 70s and 80s respectively. And her next one will be set in the 90s. Oh, my God. And it will apparently touch on, and I quote, one very specific kind of relationship between a woman and the public that she hasn't written about before. What's really interesting. I just got goosebumps. Why am I so invested? (laughs) What's really interesting and what I touched on with her in our interview that people will hear at the end of this episode is just to talk to your point about pressure. She had written Malibu Rising before Daisy Jones and the Six had actually come out. Mm. So because she writes so far in advance, she probably hasn't felt pressure maybe until about now, if not a little bit in the future, because when she's writing, she has no sense of how the public is reacting to her. I mean, what I loved as well is she put Mick Reaver, who was one of the main characters in this book, as an Easter egg in Daisy Jones and the Six after being, I would say, a relatively main-ish character in The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I mean, he was a husband. Yeah, a fleeting husband. (laughs) The third husband, I think. Yes. It's wonderful to me that there's such a beautiful link between these books that they're not a trilogy by any sense, but it feels very much like you're part of all the different stories and you can kind of see how they all link up. They're kind of cousins, kind of related, mostly not. I absolutely loved this, but it was interesting to read some of the reviews online because I think out of all the Taylor Jenkins read books I've come across, this had more divided reviews than the others. Like this one from New York Times. I don't know if you guys read this, but there were some blistering (laughs) lines in this review. Reed's dialogue wants to capture the tone of the young, the beautiful and athletic, but much of it feels lazy to the point of being cringeworthy. The dialogue and interior monologue can be juvenile, filled with repeated expletives that can't be quoted here, but wear thin and detract from the overall effect. 
I don't know if that author of that review has ever heard an episode of Shameless. <laughs> young people swear all the fucking time. What does that mean? Like, I didn't even realise that there was a lot of swearing in this book. And if it was, that's how a lot of people speak. Yeah, and that critic said that that similar style of writing was present in Daisy Jones and the Six, but it worked in that book. Yeah. But because of, like, the dialogue type style in Daisy Jones, it was pulled off, I guess. I didn't agree with this at all. Like, this did not feel juvenile. Either it didn't feel juvenile or I am juvenile <laughs> and therefore I was the target market. I also read this review similarly to you, Mish, and couldn't remember the expletives within the novel, which made me think that they were clearly pretty natural. Yeah. Right? Excitingly about this book, it should be no surprise that the rights were already bought to be adapted before it had even been released on June 1. Even better, it's actually being developed by the people who created and executive produced and wrote Little Fires Everywhere. You loved that, didn't you? I adored that. Have either of you seen it? No. Big recommend. I've already recommended it on the (laughs) podcast, but big recommend as well. So that is super exciting. And it means that out of her seven published books, four of them are currently in the process of the adaptation treatment. Imagine having a resume like that. Like just imagine being able to say that you achieved that level of success as a writer. It's absolutely nuts. Before we get into the different segments, which I know, Annabelle, you're going to introduce us to very, very shortly. I just want to say this is a book about men and the audacity. Like, (laughs) fucking hell. This book made me angrier than any Taylor Jenkins Reid book has so far. I cannot believe some of the behaviour that we're about to cover. Wow, I felt very little anger. I Yeah, I don't actually think I agree. I agree with you, but it wasn't something that was in the forefront of my mind like as I was reading it. Not at all. So angry, the anger (laughs) I went through. It was the only emotion. Did you guys cry at all? Yeah. Actually, I lie. I was, and I know we'll get into this, we're kind of jumping ahead. There was a lot of anger experienced around the character of Mick, of course, Mm -hmm. but I didn't feel like it carried me through and that was my main emotion. I just sped through the book and loved it. Yeah, it kind of just emphasised the strength of the people around him that he had negatively affected. Right. I didn't cry once, but I felt fury multiple times. (laughs) We were also in lockdown, so that might have had something to do with it. Okay, so let's talk about characters. Who did we love and who didn't we love so much? Michelle? Anyone make you angry, Mick? (laughs) Yeah, look, I think the easiest place for me to start then is just how much I despised Mick Reaver. I think particularly on that page, it was page 109, I might actually read it, when he's flying the kite with Nina and he's finally back home and he's married his wife June for the second time and it truly feels like he's going to stick around. So this is the passage that Taylor wrote. The kite needed her and her dad needed her. Oh, how good it felt to be important to somebody the way she felt important to him. You've got it, he would say, as the kite teetered in her hands. You've saved the day. He would scoop her up in his arms and Nina knew, knew in her bones that her father would never, ever leave her again. Then there's a page break. A year later, Mick Reaver was performing in Atlantic City when in walked a backup singer named Cherry. He never flew home. I just, I hate this man. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I adored the flippancy with which that was written because it kind of very much reflected the flippancy of his decisions, like how quickly they happened and how Mm. little thought seemed to go into them. He was a switch, right? Like he was either fully there, fully doting as a father, or he had no regard for the people that he had brought into the world. Yeah, I fully thought that he was going to stay for real, which is, again, just goes to show how well Taylor wrote that. I felt like one of the kids being like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy. I mean, I felt like so many of these characters were very, very likeable. Not all of them, but Mm. I would say the vast majority were really well done characters. One of the first random points I want to make that only really came to me about half an hour ago was these characters were perfectly named. Yeah. Perfectly named. How so? Brandon Randall for an American tennis player. Bang on. Nina for the beautiful sort of serene, mildly uptight one. Kit for the kind of edgy finding herself. HUD for the kind of stockier kind of like big hearted brother. Jay for the sort of, I don't know. Who is Jay? Who is that guy? Yeah, I I can't least about Jay, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if we want to jump into Jay right now, let's. (laughs) Well, okay. Can we talk about Jay for a second? Because... He was a dickhead, right? Like, I did not like a thing about Jay. He slut-shamed the girl, Lara, that he was supposedly in love with. He bashed his brother 
for now being with his ex-girlfriend, an ex-girlfriend that he never really seemed to care much about at all. What was the redeeming feature of Jay? To be honest, I didn't even care that he had a heart defect. I was like, I don't care about you, Jay. (laughs) No, I didn't hate Jay. I don't think I hated any characters in this book because I feel like Taylor has a pretty unique skill of like humanising every character and softening them with something. And I feel like Jay's softening quality was at the very end where he forgave HUD. Because I don't know, I guess there's like a weird relationship between brothers that I don't quite understand. So I kind of get how (laughs) Jay might have been really mad at HUD for his relationship with Ashley but the fact that he could let all of that like dick energy just like <laughs> melt away but why did he need to have dick energy in the first place <laughs> why did he have to bashing your brother yeah. I don't care what's happened I hate physical violence and the thought of him punching his brother's face it was like big red mark through his name I agree with that I think he had every right to be angry absolutely I also think that it was important that he forgave because yep. it was clear that he didn't treat Ashley well enough and Hud did and that they were genuinely in love but I didn't love Jay I probably hit somewhere between both of you mm, just to play that, you know <laughs> sort of the mediator I, I tell you what one of the most niche things that actually frustrated me about Jay and maybe this is like so judgmental of me and so unfair but I felt like he was nicest to Mick Reva when Mick Reva turned up and yeah. I was like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, why are you doing that? Do you think that's because he probably seemed like the kind of son that always craved like a father figure? Well, part of me was like, is it because he's most like Mick? Is that yes, why? And I actually I think, think inherently so. that's what annoyed me because I was like, you see yourself most in your dad. I mean, can we talk about Nina? Yes. I would love to talk about Nina because I fell in love with Nina pretty early. I felt like she was pretty relatable and realistic in a sense that I would say that a lot of people can recognise that character of an older sibling who either by bad luck or tragedy have to take on a whole lot of responsibility in a family and end up giving a lot of themselves up because of it. And there was like this really great quote in the book that was meant to be like a thought from Kit where it was, too much self-sufficiency was sort of mean to the people who loved you, Kit Mm. thought. You robbed them of how good it feels to give of their sense of value. I thought about that line in the context of Nina for a really long time because it made me think a lot about how opening up to people around you is like an absolute gift and one of the more generous things you can do. Not that you have to lay your trauma on the table to get close to people, but it really makes people feel, you know, seen. What do you think, Annabelle? Yeah, I agree. I did love Nina, but I kind of saw her more as the essential anchor for the story to move forward, even though I loved all of her qualities, the ones you just listed. And I love that quote as well. I noted that one down too. I harboured a similar amount of love for other characters. Right. I liked her. I did not love her. I have a critique and I wonder what you guys are going to say because I worry that you're going to slam me for saying this. So I just rolled my eyes a little bit and it might say something about me and not about Nina, but I rolled my eyes a little bit at how extreme Nina's own distaste for her own attractiveness was. Like literally on this page, this part really annoyed me. Nina ached for that time, the time when people stopped looking, stopped caring. Part of her wish she could take her beauty and hand it over to someone else, someone who wanted it. Now, I totally appreciate that having men grab you is horrific and awful, and I'm not saying that I don't despair at those storylines. But for a world-class model who has all the privileges and all the benefits of being gorgeous, to say you ache to hand that over to someone else for me just feels like a stretch. I understand saying there are bad parts to this, but there are also so many good beneficial parts to that, which I don't think Nina was self-aware enough about to make me warm to her very much. Yeah, no, I disagree. I have to say, (laughs) this is 1983. I'm not entirely sure a character would be well fitted in 1983 to say, excuse me, I also (laughs) must recognise my privilege in being so hot. It made sense to me. It really did make perfect sense to me. I mean, who am I to tell someone that they can't feel that way? It's more annoying if they were public about it and were talking publicly about it. But if that's an intrinsic feeling someone is experiencing, who am I to tell them that it's wrong if that's genuinely how they feel about their experience in the world? Do either of you buy that any hot supermodel would ever 
ache to give her beauty away. Do you actually? Because I don't buy that. No, but she isn't meant to be the normal supermodel. Like she's a she's a woman raising a family. Annabelle. Yeah, it felt like a genuine thought. Like given the context of her life in that moment. Yeah, oh, I just it was cliched. Sorry, it was cliched. <laughs> Let's talk about June. What did you think of June? Oh, June was absolutely my favorite character. I wanted to read a quote about June that kind of spoke about her as a mother. It read. She thought of her children like the magic grow capsules you got at gift shops at the science museum. These tiny little nothings that you drop into water and then watch as they slowly reveal what they were always destined to be. This one a stegosaurus, this one a T-Rex, except instead it was watching them become dependable or talented or kind or daring. And I feel like the kind of devoted mother June was depicted as tied in beautifully with Taylor Jenkins Reid's acknowledgement at the end. I don't know if you read this. Yeah. Yeah. I adore these things. You know I love acknowledgements more than anything in the world. Not not more than the Olympics. (laughs) So she wrote an acknowledgement to her daughter on the very last page. It reads, and lastly, to Lila, I think you sort of understand that I'm a writer now. You know how to read my name on book covers. And recently somebody said the word Daisy and you said Jones and the Six. (laughs) So it's easier for me to see how one day you might read this book and understand what I'm trying to tell you. But just for now, let me make it perfectly clear. I may mess up sometimes and I will not be perfect, but I will stand by your side with my hand out for you to hold for as long as you'll have me I'm yours oh my god I'm gonna cry at that and then I didn't cry at the entire book <laughs> I get goosebumps reading acknowledgements in the context of the book exactly that written, I think so I just feel like June was a symbol for not just mothers but just people who who make missteps but are loving people yeah incredibly compassionate yeah. people I want to talk about Kit and Hud because I kind of had them in a similar basket which was I adore them both. Maybe they were my two favourite characters in the book. I thought they both had incredible hearts and like a bit of edge to them. I could see them very, very clearly. I know I said Hud was stocky before, but I think it's because I imagined him to be this like small, stocky, big-hearted, really loving man. Like someone who, and I don't know if this is just me, like you know, extrapolating too much, but someone who wouldn't have been seized by maybe like the toxic masculinity of that time. Yes. Kit was just like, I could see her. She was like every younger sister ever, like really coming of age, really having a bit of grit to her. Like that fourth sibling energy was palpable for me. We both come from families of four siblings and Kit was my favourite character in the whole book. I agree. I think Hud was second strongest. I think I could see these two and they were so vivid, like the vividness of these characters, almost as a juxtaposition made Jay feel less real to me like I could see these two so much and then when it came to Jay I saw literally nothing but Kit the spunkiness of that character was just delicious like I absolutely adored her did you love Kit as well yeah I did love Kit she was really visible to me as well as hard like you guys say and with hard I feel like the strength of his love for Ashley was the most attractive quality because it was so unlike Mick's relationship with June and the way he was as a partner. Yeah, and it was also one of those things that on paper you're meant to hate, right? You're like, Mm. you're not meant to want to date your sibling's ex-partner. But when the story comes to life, you're like, well, it makes sense. I did want to read one piece from that New York Times review that you mentioned, Mish, that was a little bit scathing as it went on. It read like this. Also wearing is the reliance on superlatives. Mick is one of the most famous men in the world. Nina's party guests include a guy who is writing some of the biggest hits of the decade, one of the most beautiful women in the world and the greatest female tennis player of all time. Surely this is social satire. Reed is mocking Hollywood fame, but it's not entirely clear what is tongue in cheek. What? So I wanted to talk about that in the context of this conversation we're having about characters. I adored the superlatives that were used about all of these characters because we're talking about a book of fame. Like we are meant to be thinking about it and imagining it in extremes. I don't want the third best tennis player turning (laughs) up at this party. I want the number one. Yeah, absolutely. I'm confused why the reviewer thought that this was far-fetched. This is precisely what we hear out of like socialite Hollywood parties. I... I'm completely perplexed by that. It's almost like a reviewer saying, I want the fame elements, but give me C-grade celebrities. I don't want the A-grade stuff. Yeah, it seems so nitpicky. And I really doubt if you were to read like the Goodreads reviews of actual readers, I don't think anyone would have that issue. I think this is just a critic being nitpicky, as I said. Yeah, a bit of snob. (laughs) Speaking of the top tennis player, before we move on, I do want to have a brief discussion around Brandon, Nina's husband, because I think we saw everything that we hated in Brandon that we loved in HUD. 
And I think our love of Hard boiled down to the fact that he saw Ashley as his teammate and she was an equal to him. There was a definite threat in this book, whether it was Brandon or whether it was Mick Reaver, in that they saw the women in their lives as an accessory to make them better men. And Hud was not like that. Hud just wanted to be a good man and he wanted to share a life with a woman. Brandon kept talking about like how he was this good guy and he was so fixated on being seen as the good guy without actually being the good guy, which is my least favourite kind of guy. We all know that guy. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) Coming up after the break, we talk about the party itself and then we jump straight to Zara's interview with Taylor. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Guys, let's talk about the party itself, the very chaotic party. (laughs) Were you guys immersed? Did you enjoy it, Michelle? I was immersed in it. I wasn't at the very, very beginning, though. I found some of the little anecdotes around the party to be a little overly cliched. The one that annoyed me the most was the anecdote about Seth and Eliza Nakamura, I don't know if you guys remember this, where he's looking for the love of his life out on the lawn <laughs> and she's by the front door and if only they, like, I crossed paths. I hated that. That, to me, felt like a bad rom-com. I loved that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is where you run into trouble when you have all these little stories that are so short and so saccharine you do bleed into the territory of oversimplifying or maybe dumbing down the content. And while I loved some of the party scenes and I thought they brought excellent colour, some of them to me rubbed me the wrong way. What about you, Zara? I loved the party, loved the chaos, felt like I was in the centre of it, that I was like looking around everywhere being like, what the fuck is going on here? Felt very much like there were a million short stories within a much larger story, which I adored. Like I know that they had to be oversimplified, as you said, Mish, but I didn't mind that at all. I think the only thing that I really had to concentrate on in this time was the fact that there were just so many people at the party and there were so many characters. But I just adored the chaos. I think one niche criticism I have, and I only really have like two niche bits of criticism about the party, but one of them was just like the sudden introduction of Tareen as Mm. Nina's best friend. And Nina was painted as someone who was a bit lonely, who grew up years ahead of her peers. And I'm not saying she's not allowed friends. Like, she is allowed friends. (laughs) No best friends for Nina. I just kind of felt like it was a random time to introduce this really close friend of Nina's. Yeah, I kind of felt like, oh, famous people probably have, like, different kinds of friendships to us. (laughs) They just, like, float in and out at weird times. We couldn't possibly understand. Exactly. I really liked that there was, like, a large volume of characters during the party scene because it made it feel so real to me. And I could see like the camera if this was a TV show cut to all the different little storylines but the one thing that I couldn't quite picture were those really intense like extreme party scenes just because probably from personal experience (laughs) I haven't been to a party like that before like swinging from chandeliers (laughs) (laughs) I want to put something to you guys I wonder if you raised an eyebrow at this as well when Nina was watching Hud and Ashley talk to some random person at the party and she instantly clicked that they had been sleeping together slash were in love with each other that to me felt a little bit forced as well like in real life have you ever looked at two people and like they're fucking and they're (laughs) in love and then felt the confidence to announce that at the family meeting a few hours later even when you've had zero conversation you just know no I agree with you I think a couple of things needed to be added to this she needed to have a hunch beforehand she needed to think something was weird with HUD then she needed to see them together and think oh that makes sense then she needed to ask HUD about it Then she needed to go to the family. Yeah, Yeah. I actually thought that the storyline was going to be that when Jay and the girl that he was in love with, I think it was Lara, were walking to the car, Hud's car to go have sex, I thought they were going to like happen upon Hud and Ashley having sex or something. But I just thought there'd be some confrontation where Nina saw them kissing or saw them having sex or saw them doing something that proved that this was a real deal thing, not just like brushing alongside each other while having a combo. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But when I was reading it, I did not pick up on that. I was just kind of like, wow, Nina has great instincts. Like, this is a mother instinct. <laughs> That's so Nina. I mean, one other thing that I wanted to note about the party, which might tie into what you were saying before, Annabelle, was 
Nina as a character was painted as pretty uptight and it kind of baffled me how she was the owner of this house and she really didn't mind how fucking insane (laughs) this party was. And I think about it from the context of myself because I would consider myself pretty uptight sometimes too. And if I had a party like this in my house, it doesn't matter how much trauma I was experiencing (laughs) or how much I was like, I'm going to let go of all my inhibitions, you would still look around and feel pretty anxious at the state of your house. A chandelier falling to the ground and leaving a hole in the ceiling is a whole other level of disarray. Even the thought, like, when Taylor Jenkins Reid was writing about food being smushed into the carpet, I I literally wanted to throw the book into a fire myself. I was like, I cannot deal with this. Like, the fact, spoiler alert, I mean, no spoiler for you guys because you've already read it, the fact that the house went up in flames was kind of okay for me because I'm like, this mess (laughs) is so unbearable, I cannot stand the thought of having to fix it. easier to clean (laughs) It's also not a spoiler, it's on the blurb that the house goes up in flames. What do we think about Casey and her introduction to the family? I don't think she needed to be there. I don't think Mm. we needed to have a long-lost sibling turn up. We had a long-lost father turn up. I just think it also just, like, could have been a scammer. Like, this wasn't any family. We're told that this is an incredibly famous family with a very famously absent dad. It could have been anyone. I was just like, why is this girl here? This reminded me of like that age old rule that you get dressed in the morning, you go very extra and then you take one thing off. I think it was like Coco Chanel that says something. I feel like in the editing process, the editors of this book should have gone, everything's great, remove a little bit of spice now. Like we're getting a little bit verging into daytime soap opera territory. I think Casey tipped the scale over that way. Yeah. They were like, oh, I think I see mixed lip over <laughs> But it could be something else. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like that very famous friend scene where Phoebe meets her long-lost mother and she's like, do you like pizza? And they're like, I, I love pizza. pizza. I was like, what about dogs? She's like, I love dogs. And they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> I must give a hat tip towards the hot tub jacuzzi sex scene that we got in the middle of the party as well I can't remember her oh Wendy the failed actress who was a waiter at the same time who decided that before she went home and married her balding kind of on and off again boyfriend Charles she was gonna fuck two rock stars in a hot tub like that is peak (laughs) wild party energy for me the wildness of that give me all of it injected into my veins Love it. The wildness of chips crunched into carpet, (laughs) I can do without. (laughs) Okay, let's jump to our final segment where we talk about, I think, the central theme of the book, which is the recurring generational patterns of family ties. Michelle, what do you have to say about this? I think this was the golden part of Malibu Rising. I think it was very obviously the key theme. I mean, we finished part one with a passage about how we might be destined to live on the lives of our parents even when we don't intend to and then at the end of the book we learn that actually no you can forge your own path I think this was incredibly incredibly strong because I think a lot of people particularly people in their teens and 20s like this book grapples with they do go through this process of wondering what idiosyncrasies or what tendencies they do inherit from their parents, good and bad. And it was kind of brilliant and fresh to see that mapped out and explored because I don't think I've read that in a book before. Yeah, there was real depth here, like real depth. I think it would be very easy for people to discount this book and maybe a few other of Taylor Jenkins Reid's books as kind of frivolous and celebrity-like and silly, but there is real depth. And there was a couple of lines I really loved on this theme One of them was, our family histories are simply stories. They are myths we create about the people who came before us in order to make sense of ourselves. There was also this one too. Maybe our parents' lives are imprinted within us. Maybe the only fate there is, is the temptation of reliving their mistakes. Maybe, try as we might, we will never be able to outrun the blood that runs through our veins. Or maybe we are free the moment we are born. Maybe everything we've ever done is by our own hands. I felt very much like the point Taylor Jenkins Reid was trying to make is that sometimes we assume that we're going to end up like our parents as if it's a foregone conclusion and therefore we don't really try to fight. It's actually interesting. Taylor Jenkins Reid didn't 
intend to write about the intergenerational aspect of this story. So funnily enough, she told The Hollywood Reporter that the story of Mick and June wasn't actually going to happen. She said, for me, I think it ended up being very much a story about generations. Families can perpetuate cycles and also break them. I didn't set out for it to, but it's made me very introspective about my role as a parent. What are the things that I want to give my daughter and what are the things that I've collected along the way that I really hope I don't give her? Mm-hmm. That introspection kind of snuck up on me in this one and that's exactly what makes this book so powerful and then I think we've all had that deliberation in our minds about where we want to go and what we don't want to leave behind for future generations Mm. yeah it's so interesting there was this quote again from this New York Times review that we keep coming back to that said before long Mick gets distracted by a pretty woman then another and another adding up to a total of six eventual marriages he is not a villain he may be a velvet voiced Peter Pan of a husband and deadbeat dad but doesn't the fault lie with his parents for setting terrible examples of parenting and fidelity I was like surely this is excusing too much like the point of this book and not to kind of like tell a New York Times book reviewer that they're wrong but surely you're missing the point of the book Mm. to not understand that what I think Taylor Jenkins Reid was trying to communicate is that we have agency we just need to recognize it. Taylor Jenkins Reid to me was saying you cannot rest on the crutch or you do not have to rest on the crutch that you are going to repeat the patterns that were laid out before you. Mick used that as an excuse. He said, I behaved this way because look at what my dad did. I was a shitty father because I had a shitty dad. When Hud proved that wrong, Hud knew from the second he found out his girlfriend was pregnant that he would not leave the family. Yes, maybe down the line their relationship wouldn't work out, but he was going to be there for his children. It baffles me that any reviewer could pick up this book, put it back down and say, oh, we make mistakes that our parents did. No, this is saying you can change your life. Even though June found herself in the same restaurant that she never wanted to be in charge of, her children found a way to break out of it. Even though Nina ended up with a cheating piece of shit husband, just like her mother did, she found a way to break that pattern. There was even that very, very brief storyline in the book when she crossed paths with that movie star at the party. And you could see kind of like a fork in the road. She could repeat the same behavior and she could get with the very charming electric man and then end up with her heart broken again or she could carve herself a new path this was the opposite of what that reviewer was saying odd yeah and it also made me appreciate and realize the strength in sibling relationships or like any relationship that you form in a lifetime like how you can lean on other people to shape your life and like to shape the kind of person that you want to be. Yeah, that's so true. It doesn't just have to be your parents. Yeah. I'm really interested in whether you guys felt this, but it might have just been me and my very flawed sense of self. But I really had to check my own bias when I was reading the story of June in particular because part of me was using my 2021 experience of being a woman to reflect on the you know 1960 experience of June and I just wanted to shake her sometimes and be like you don't have to live like this like Mm. you can make these decisions and I really really had to check myself to be like it has been 60 years since you know the time that we're reflecting on this character you can't possibly use your own experience to try and make sense of her experience but it also made me think a lot about this restaurant you know Reva's Seafood which was what it was called by the end of the book And this restaurant felt like a very strong symbol of like family legacy, right? That Nina felt like this intense need to keep it alive, even though it was running at a loss. And I was like, does our loyalty to legacy actually suffocate us? Like what Mm. does family legacy even mean? Like have we been oversold this idea that we need to kind of continue a family legacy because it's the right thing to do when in reality it can be the thing that puts us in boxes and stops us from being who we are? Yeah, I loved the addition of Hud not actually being a full brother or a full sibling of these kids and yet he felt just as much a part of that sibling love and that family dynamic as anyone else, I think. That was really crucial in communicating that you don't need to carry a legacy of people just because you carry their blood. You define who your family is. You get to choose. And it was also, I mean, I didn't like the addition of Casey, the mysterious maybe (laughs) half-sister. But again, at least that reaffirmed that point of maybe it doesn't matter if she's even mixed child. We never got confirmation whether she was or she wasn't. What was important was the fact that they were going to encircle her in their group anyway. And I think that's a huge testament to June with Hud and also to Nina for creating that kind of warmth in their family dynamic. 
Guys, let's talk ratings. Ooh. This is like the part that scares me the most because I have no <laughs> idea where I'm pulling these numbers from. <laughs> There's no forethought. Zara, what would you give this book? I thought about this a lot this morning, team. Actually, I thought about it a lot the whole time and I have decided this morning that I will give this book five. Wow. Yeah. I um, really loved it. I loved the experience of reading it. I actually read it ages ago. I interviewed Taylor Jenkins Reid when the book just came out. Which I, was like June. It wasn't which, ages ago. Which was, I think I interviewed her at the end of May right. for this. I read the book about a month before that. Reliving this book in the last few days in preparation for this episode has been such a joy. I feel like I've kind of experienced it twice. Yeah. And that has been such a joy that I'm like, this experience has been amazing. Five. You've known this book longer than really anyone else. If anyone's scratching their heads how Zara read this month's Ago, we were given a proof copy. So you were just one of the lucky ones before who had I did it before this it came out. Yes. yes, absolutely. I would give this book a four out of five. I really, really enjoyed it. I would recommend it to everyone. I zoomed through it. It did lean a little bit too heavily into the cliched, saccharine, obvious storylines to me. I think it was a more obvious read than any of her other books that I've read, but I still love it. I still think it is ahead of the vast majority of books that I pick up. I'm going to side with Zara and go for a five yeah. <laughs> because I've only ever read Daisy Jones and the Six of Taylor Jenkins Reid's books. And I think I preferred this just because of the family aspect. I yeah. really love reading about family bonds and dynamics. And I think it was done really, really well in this book. There you go. And now, finally, Zara, let's jump to your interview with Taylor Jenkins Reid, where your friendship blossoms, I must (laughs) say. I'm not listening out of jealousy. I'm not listening. Don't overstate it. It was just a nice chat. Taylor Jenkins Reid, welcome to Shameless. We are so excited to chat to you. I feel like you're a bit of a rock star in the book industry. So it is such a pleasure to chat to you today. Thank you for having me. I'm just appreciative of you taking the time. Taylor, I think I wanted to start talking to you today about how the three books that I've read of yours seem to focus so much on celebrity and glamour. And I wanted to know first and foremost, particularly in the context of Malibu Rising, what draws you to writing characters that appear, I guess, more sparkly than most on the outside? Yeah, I'm super fascinated by fame and glamour. And and I think what I'm most fascinated about those things is that I think we have a really reductive view of them. I know I have at different points in my life, I'm like, oh, like that celebrity is so beautiful and so thin and has so much money, like they can't possibly have any problems. And yet at the exact same time, it seems really, really difficult to me to be living in the public eye, to have people's opinions of you right in your face all of the time, to have the pressure of success. And so I'm always trying to take a two-step approach to these stories. On the one hand, it looks very glamorous on the outside. On the other hand, what it is like to live in that world is very different than how it looks. And in the tension of those two things, what it looks like versus what the truth is, that's when I get really excited about a story. And so whether it's Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Daisy Jones and the Six, or now Malibu Rising, they're ultimately stories about how the outside doesn't exactly represent what's going on on the inside. I have to say, this might be a super weird question for you to answer, but I feel like it's no secret that Daisy Jones and the Six in particular was like a complete runaway success and that you have become a household name yourself. Is there some weird thing writing about fame now when you are experiencing part of it? It's a really good question. You know, it's funny. My instinct is to immediately dissuade you of the notion that I am a runaway success. (laughs) But you are. Well, thank you. It's hard for me to think of myself that way. But look, I have had a taste of what it feels like to have eyes on what you're doing. And I have also had a taste of how it feels to now have an expectation of what someone can expect of your work. There is now a standard of, if you liked Daisy Jones, what am I going to do after that? And I have to say, I think it makes me more interested in these stories because they become more and more human to me. The little taste that I've had of it makes it clear to me that there is a lot of conflict in attention. You can run to it and 
it can burn you, you can run from it, and you may not succeed. There is an innate conflict for me in seeking out fame. And I think any person living in the public eye has to reckon with the complexities of that experience. I just never stop being fascinated by it. When you're repelled by the exact same thing that you're drawn to, that's gold. That's, that's <laughs> you know, it, for a story area, for a character, there's nothing more compelling than that. And I, I'm definitely living in that space. I am, I am deeply attracted to the glamour of Hollywood. I'm also immensely repelled by the idea of attention on me. And I'm living that in my own life as well. It's amazing. Your strength as well is writing so much about the past. I mean, Malibu Rising, for example, is set in the 1980s. I mean, what is it about those times that you enjoy looking back on? Because I imagine it would be very easy to set these books in the present, but you choose not to. Yeah, I actually don't know if it would be easy to set them in the present because I don't have perspective on the present. I'm going through it now. I feel like I understand less about the world today than I even thought I understood it five years ago. What the past gives me is distance. And it also gives me nostalgia. And so there's those two things happening again, right? Like I can glamorize the 70s and I can glamorize the 80s. And at the same time, have to deal with the brutal truths of that period of time. During the 70s, women were facing things in a more overt way than we're facing now. In the 80s, you know, Nina as a supermodel does not have the culture behind her in the way that I think she would now. She doesn't have the sympathy and the understanding of the wider culture that I think we do listen to supermodels now about the damaging effects of objectification. So it allows me that same thing. It allows me to make it glamorous and, oh, don't you want to go back to 1983? Don't you want to go to a party on the beach, you know, during this period of time where it seemed like, you know, greed is good and nobody cares and whatever. It's like, yeah, at first you do, but then I'm going to bring you there. And now we're going to start dealing with the difficulties and the complexities of that time. Did you feel pressure writing this book given the success of your others or was that something that you had to actively block out to get the story onto the page? You know, I don't really feel pressure in the creative process. I think part of that is because by the time people are reading Malibu Rising, I started writing this book two months after I finished writing Daisy Jones. My first drafts of it were done well before anybody knew Daisy Jones existed And so that does give me a little bit of freedom because I don't know how the next book is going to be received. And I'm already working on the book that comes after that. So I do feel I have maintained a sort of, for lack of a less pretentious word, a purity in the moment in which I'm at the computer and I'm telling a story. The part where the stress comes in is once the book is done and I feel like I've said what I want to say, and then it's that sense of dread of like, oh God, are they going to hate it? (laughs) And I think that's when the, well, so-and-so thought this of this book, and but they also said that of this other book, and are they going to like this one? That all comes in once the book is written, and I can start freaking out and telling myself I should have done something different. But the book that you're reading is the book that I desperately wanted to write, And so far, I've been able to maintain that. I think there's this great concept. I think it was from Seth Godin that really resonated with me, which was this idea of the creative dip that you feel really strongly in what you're doing when you're pushing it out. You almost feel strongly once it's done. And then it's like just before it comes out into the world, you have this big, sharp dip where you're like, this was terrible. This was terrible. I'm talking to you just before the book is released. Do you identify with that? Oh, hugely. I mean, I sometimes have to go back to the book and be like, okay, no, this is good. This is a good book. Like, like I'll read a few pages of it and I'll be like, no, no, no. Okay. This is why I liked it. This is why I thought it was a good idea. Look, I try really hard not to be aware of what people are saying about my work. I try to keep the criticism that I engage with constructive. And so if there's a consensus that this negative thing was true, I want to learn from that. But individually, I don't want to engage too much because I will immediately go into that dip. I will immediately Mm -hmm. listen to every negative thing someone has to say. 
ignore every positive review there is. And really, like, I'm a glutton for punishment in that way. It is so easy to convince me that I'm complete trash and should never publish again. So it's like, I want to keep my relationship to my book as pure as I can. And that's why occasionally I just have to, like, open the first page and, like, read a couple sentences. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, we're okay. It's good. It's good. We'll be fine. It makes sense. <laughs> Talk to me about your writing process. I mean, that sense of, I know you said it's a wanky word, but purity was very lovely to hear that you pushed the books out probably long before the book before this one is even out. But what do you do when you're writing? Do you go away or is it very much just at home in your office smashing out the words? Yeah, it's not a glamorous experience. It's me sitting at my desk, trying to get as many words in as I can in between my kid running in and, you know, needing my attention about something or an email coming in that I have to respond to. And before I had a kid, before there was quite the same pressure on me, it was more like, I work from this hour to this hour and don't interrupt me. And this is my process. Once you have a kid, I think it just sort of becomes catch as catch can. You know, it's like, oh, I have a half hour now. Let me see what I can do. And honestly, I think I've benefited from the, I'm really not afforded any preciousness about the process anymore. I have a job to do. I need to get it done. And it sort of refreshed my process and made a new job in some ways. And look, having a lot of things going on in your life, having a kid, having experiences, they make you a better writer. And so that balance of here's everything that's going on in my life and here's the time that I need to carve out to write, that gives me something to say. It gives me something to write about. And so I think as much as having a kid has made it harder to get the time in, it has made it so I have so much more opinions and things to talk about and things that excite me about the world. Is there an element of confidence that comes with this as well, knowing that, I don't know, I feel like a lot of writers, as you say, would need that block of not being interrupted, just like an endless stretch of time to get words out. But is there an element of confidence that comes in to be like, well, I can actually push words out right now if I've got 20 minutes and there is noise around me? Yeah, I think parenthood, if it's taught me anything, it's that I am capable of more than I think that I am. And it has absolutely given me a confidence of like, if it needs to get done, I'm going to get it done. But I also think what it's done is given me a confidence, not parenthood, but but this process for me. And, and as my career has moved forward, I think I've gained a confidence in recognizing the difference between something that I write that is good and something that I write that is bad. And so if I have 20 minutes, I'm just going to bang out something. And I know that when I go look at it later that day or in a few days, I'll be able to tell if it's garbage and I can delete it. As opposed <laughs> to earlier in my career, I don't know if I would have had that clarity. So there's just less of a risk, you know, like sit down, get the words out, fix them later. You, you know, I, I know that I'll be able to fix them later. I want to know what makes you know that an idea is good enough? Because it's one thing to have an idea in your mind saying, okay, I want to write about four siblings in the 80s who throw this house party every year on New Year's Eve and it's a very glamorous affair, but then something happens. And then knowing that you're going to be able to stretch that story out for three to 400 words. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I ever actually know at the beginning that I'll be able to, <laughs> but I think for me, you know, I'll have a, a bunch of different ideas at once. I, I will be like, oh, I I want something that takes place at the beach. Like I want to do Malibu. And it's like, I want to do something in the eighties and I want to do a party and I want to do a story about a family. I haven't done a family saga before and I'll have all these pieces, but I won't know how they come together. And then at some point, there's some element of it that just is like the glue that, that I'm like, oh, here it is. Here is how you tell this story. And I think for, for Malibu Rising, it was the surfer piece of it. It was surfers in Malibu became like, yeah, I want to go there. And I want to know what that family is. But for me, the piece is when I put all these together, can I see it? What is the title? What does the cover look like in my head? What are the scenes? Is there a scene that I'm like, oh, if that's the story I'm telling, I know exactly when this happens, what's that going to feel like? It becomes visceral when it's like, oh, I see this scene. 
I know how this is going to go. I know how I want this to end. I know where everything's going. The confidence comes from that moment where it gels together and I can see it before I've written it. And there's a lot of ideas that I have that never comes to me or it hasn't come to me yet. I've got a list of ideas in my computer that are like random little bits of things. And until that moment gels where it's like, this is the way to do it. I see how that goes down. They're just going to sit there just by themselves on my computer. Was there a character in this book that was harder to say goodbye to than the others or one that you fell in love with the most? Oh, I mean, I have to say these characters were the hardest to say goodbye to of any book that I've written. I spent more time with them. This book took me longer to write. It took more drafts. HUD in particular is someone that I've just, I just care about him very, very much. June, she sticks with me. And I will say, I was very conflicted about writing the story of Nick Riva. He shows up in other books of mine. He's a cad in every one. I sort of love to hate him. And the experience of writing this book over that many drafts was learning how to have some empathy and to care about him and to want him to change, you know, in the hope that the reader will want him to change and then be invested in whether or not he does. So, you know, it pains me to say it, but Nick Regal was also hard to say goodbye to. How interesting. It's so funny. I read this book. I feel like I read this book a while ago now because the minute it landed on my desk, I picked it up straight away. And even just talking to you about the characters now makes me want to go back again and just smash it all out because I missed spending time with them too. They (laughs) were so clear in my mind. With that in mind, what do you want people to feel when they read your books? I want people to feel two things. I want people to feel transported and entertained. Like ultimately, I do just want people to have a good time, to put their problems aside for a moment, to be able to escape from their own minds and go into another world, another time with other people. That's number one. And the other thing too, is I do want to give people something to think about. It could be a small thing, but I'm thinking with every single book, what am I trying to say? What do these characters stand for? In what way can I try to challenge the status quo, give support to people who are often made to be on the outside, And so I hope, in particular with this book, that there are women who read it and when they get to the end, feel some catharsis at the decisions that Nina makes. That's my hope. Taylor Jenkins-Reid, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much too for writing such wonderful books that do transport, that absolutely transport. They take you out of your mind or whatever is going on in whatever moment. So thank you so much. And thank you for the chat. It's been such a delight. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to our July instalment of The Shameless Book Club, where we dissected all things Malibu Rising. What a book. What a book. Up next is Fault Lines by Emily Atami. This book is one Zara actually read over her July holiday. She keeps zooming past us. She's really streaming (laughs) ahead. She loved it. So the pressure is on Annabelle and I. Here's the blurb. Zara, do you want to do the honours? Yeah, I will. I do actually feel the pressure. I feel the pressure of this book because I loved it. So what if you guys turn up (laughs) next month and hate it? Anyway, this is is the blurb. Mizuki is a Japanese housewife. She has a hardworking husband, two adorable children and a beautiful Tokyo apartment. It's everything a woman could want, yet sometimes she wonders whether it would be more fun to throw herself off the high-rise balcony than spend another evening not talking to her husband or hanging up laundry. Then, one rainy night, she meets Kiyoshi, a successful restaurateur. In him, she rediscovers freedom, friendship, a voice and the neon electric pulse of the city she has always loved. But the further she falls into their relationship, the clearer it becomes she is living two lives. And in the end, we can only choose one. We can't wait to delve into this one and see whether Mish and I love it as much as Zara did. As always, guys, you can find us on Instagram at the Shameless Book Club. Bye. Bye. See you on Monday. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish? 
stylish if you want to say it quickly, style-ish if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.